Hello and thanks for joining for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking to you from here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. Do like our Facebook page and or follow our Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk. There are show notes and links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com and please also do rate or review the podcast on whatever platform you use which helps us reach new listeners. Thank you very much to all our current members and if you yourself haven't signed up yet why not consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member to get exclusive extras and help us keep going. Joining our growing list of members gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which so far amounts to over 90 conversations and which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. In addition members get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% of the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category IB Taurus which is part of Bloomsbury has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Last but not least members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering various categories including Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and was previously available online but nowadays a turkey book talk membership is the only way to access it to become a member all you have to do is pledge a minimum of three dollars per episode via turkey book talks official patreon account new episodes go out every two weeks so the monthly membership price is no more than six dollars if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more then you'll certainly be more than welcome but so long as you pledge that three dollars or above per episode membership is entirely at your own discretion members only get charged when a new episode is published so there are no prior commitments or strings attached you're free to sign off whenever you want but now let's crack on with our latest episode in which we speak to Yarmor Karakaya. She's a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Minnesota and her research focuses on the role of Ottoman nostalgia in contemporary Turkey. She's also the author of a paper titled The Conquest of Hearts, The Central Role of Ottoman Nostalgia Within Contemporary Turkish Populism, which was published in November 2018 in the American Journal of Cultural Sociology. It's an interesting piece that she's written on these matters and we dig into this phenomenon from both its popular and political angles in Turkey later on in this conversation. Of course, historical nostalgia and populism are rising trends not just in Turkey, but also in countries as varied as the UK, India, Russia, Hungary, China and many others. So I started by asking Yarmor Karakaya to situate Turkey in this broader global context. Yeah, I do think that Turkey is part of this trend, which is using this combination between populism and nostalgia. And I do see both populism and nostalgia here in this case as styles rather than ideologies or regimes. Of course, in different contexts, these styles will work differently, but there are some common elements that I am seeing. First of all, this is a 
very active nostalgia. This nostalgia is not about, you know, sitting and reminiscing, questioning your past or, you know, drinking raku and, you know, talking about the good old days. No, this is a very active type of nostalgia that is about accomplishing things and doing things and building roads. So both in, say, Trump's United States and Modi's India, we are seeing leaders who are really ready to take the lead to do things and change the economy for people. And these people are also saviors in a sense. So they do posit history as infinitely better than what we are faced with right now. Uh, the contemporary world is crumbling versus the past was so glorious and so much better than today. And, you know, these saviors, these strong leaders are ready to bring back that past in these new forms of, you know, roads, bridges. You're obviously familiar with Erdogan's 2023 project. So we are talking about kind of like a creative destruction here rather than just sit and think and wander kind of nostalgia. Similarly, populism as a style here is very mobilizing. It's about doing things, bringing things, changing things. So I would say that these two work very well together. Populism, by its nature, is very dual. It's about the people versus the elite, the winners versus the losers. One of the questions that I'm asking is, like, why do populism and nostalgia travel together? When you combine those two rhetorics together, and if you add in emotions as ingredients, then it does work well as a political tool. Specifically in, in Turkey, you know, we're talking really here about the uh, Ottoman Empire and nostalgia for the Ottoman era or a particular version of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And it struck me as I was reading uh, the paper that um, there's a kind of divide here, actually. There's one kind of nostalgia that we might consider, which sees the Ottoman Empire as this epitome of tolerance where, you know, you get different religious and ethnic groups living peacefully alongside each other. And then there's this other form of nostalgia, probably a more ascendant form of nostalgia, where it's much more of a kind of supremacist mm. it's much more about religious and Islamic identity power and a particular mm. reading of history just uh, reflect a little bit on this divide in these two kind of forms really of nostalgia these two perspectives in a way of looking yeah. at the Ottoman Empire Yes, for sure. And I think it's a great question because I do think that neo-optimism has both of those veins. AKP did talk about a multicultural Ottoman past, and that was a different era for AKP as well, because we were talking about the Kurdish opening, you know, we, we were talking about joining the European Union still, whereas beginning from 2011, we also see a shift within the neo-Ottoman discourse moving from this, you know, multicultural, tolerant, and cosmopolitan view to a more belligerent, more masculine, and more religious, more us versus them, more Islam versus Christianity kind of rhetoric. But this is not to say that really one is better than the other. I know that on the surface, of course, we might want to prefer this tolerance, cosmopolitan version of this discourse. But it is a tilia 
ideological view of history, right? We don't live in an age of empires anymore. We live in a world of nation states. And that kind of governance or that millet system doesn't really work well in this environment. And tolerance in itself implies that something's something needs to be tolerated, that there is actually a group of people that are outside of this tolerance governance, right? And in, in the Ottoman Empire, these are the Muslims, you know, Muslims paid less tax. We are not in a world like that. So we can't like ask people to pay less tax based on their religious or ethnic affiliations. So even though seemingly benevolent, it is actually also a dangerous cosmetic discourse I would say. I have a project where I look at the Holocaust commemorations in Turkey, right? So Turkey has been commemorating the Holocaust officially and especially there they use a lot of this multicultural tolerant discourse and it sounds like they are trying to like build a continuum from the Ottoman Empire and kind of like whitewash the more difficult 20th century history that we have, right? So it's about we have always been tolerant here we have always lived peacefully and there is like zero atrocities in our history and we don't have violence in our past so that rhetoric even though seemingly you know tolerant and multicultural and a heaven of diversity actually does erase some of the more contested areas in Turkish history now, um, the centre of the paper that we're talking about focuses on a massive rally and uh, ceremony back in 2016, uh, which celebrated the Ottoman conquest of Istanbul in 1453. People familiar with Turkey will, will most likely be very familiar with these uh, kind of ceremonies. And they're always quite bombastic occasions with uh, various speeches, including, of course, from uh, President Erdogan in the year that we're talking about. Could you just introduce really this event and talk about why it's an interesting case to study, really? Yeah, so like I said, I started my dissertation project being interested in nostalgia and like how emotions work in these nostalgic settings. So I thought, as you said, this bombastic, really spectacular and carnivalesque environment would be a great place to start looking at that stuff. And part of my project is also about interviewing people. So I have interviewed 50 people across Turkey. So I thought, okay, how can I get into how people actually perceive these rallies because when you look at the media we talk about okay look at nostalgia sweeping people away or look at populism sweeping people away and then the question is wait a minute does it actually sweep people away or when it does how does it sweep people away you know who get who gets to emote about these things or who gets you know not so emotional in a setting like that so I started with looking at the rally and I do think that, yes, this populist nostalgia is really powerful in terms of evoking emotions. But I also think that evoking emotions in a performative setting is an art. So not everyone does convince people. And like it or not, he has been convincing a segment of population, he being Erdogan, for years now. So I'm like, okay, then what is his, you know, what is his trick? What is the tricks of this trade? Let's get to the bottom of that. 
that. And if you look at emotional theory, we actually have like feelings. We have bodily sensations when you put us in an environment. But it's up to the person to make an emotional interpretation of that. So you're going to find yourself in a rally setting and, you know, jets fly above you. There is a huge city wall uh, shattering over and over in front of you. And obviously, you're among a million people, right? Um, you can think that, oh my God, this is claustrophobic, or you might, you may feel like, oh my God, I'm in a rock concert. This is amazing. Look at all these people around me. Put Yamur there, put William there, and then they're going to feel things. But then it's also up to the leader to give you a content about that setting to make you feel like, oh, wait a minute. I feel all these like effervescent feelings, but maybe it's because I love this leader, or maybe it's because, yes, I'm very proud of my ancestors who conquered Istanbul for me. So I do think that it's up to the audience to actually like take that message. But of course, then the content in that context will matter a lot. And that that's when I look at what Erdogan says, because you'll be feeling all those feelings when a jet flies really low, you know, emanating all kinds of sounds and smoke, right? And then when somebody says people are still jealous of the conquest of Constantinople and we are surrounded by enemies that we should be careful about and then you might be like yeah I feel very emotional about this we should be careful and look at this guy he's gonna save me from this really dangerous world that we live in so he does provide this meaning making system to you or this recipe about how to make sense of the dangerous world we live in so I think when it works for people this you know, this is how it works. One example that always strikes me in these commemorations is uh, is the way that, uh, in quite explicit ways, it, it drew parallels between uh, Mehmet the Conqueror, conqueror of Istanbul, the Sultan of the, uh, the Ottoman Empire at the time, and President Erdogan himself. Mm-hmm. So that is the that is a pretty down the line utilizing of history there. Yeah. Talk, talk about that uh, striking example. Yeah. And to me, like that metaphor works really well, because in this narrative, he's depicted as this lone wolf, or he's depicted as this like savior who was predicted by Prophet Muhammad to conquer Istanbul, you know, against every kind of odds. He's also depicted as a leader who did everything by himself, and he didn't give up. And people told him that it was almost impossible to conquer Constantinople, but no, he didn't give up, right? He didn't listen to those people. So you can easily draw parallels to contemporary Turkey and the rising authoritarianism. You know, we should listen to our leader because we might not feel like what he's saying is right right now, but down the line, maybe we'll conquer Constantinople, right? So using him as an example like that is really interesting. And if you, you know, if you know a little bit about Fatih, he was he was a guy who had a painting of himself. He was like looking up to Byzantine Byzantine leaders, and you know he was like minting coin after his name and stuff like that. So he's also he's actually very Western in a sense, but that stuff doesn't come up. What comes up about Fatih is that he's a great Islamic leader. So that kind of playing with history is also prevalent in this portrayal of him. 
I mean, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, Ottoman nostalgia is this brand new thing brought in by the AKP, but Mm -hmm. it's not quite right, actually. It goes back many decades. I think the first modern or official ceremony uh, celebrating the the conquest of Istanbul actually occurred under the Democrat Party back in 1953, uh, which was, of course, the 500th year anniversary, uh, so Mm -hmm. quite a landmark. And uh, then I believe later under the the, uh, Welfare Party of uh, Nejmetin Erbakan, Mm -hmm. uh, the predecessor of the AK Party, uh, those Mm -hmm. commemorations were kind of stepped up again so just talk really about this kind of modern history really of of Ottoman nostalgia that goes back over decades really. Yeah, exactly. And you could even argue that Ottomans themselves were the first nostalgics. There's a reason that it's called neo-Ottomanism, right? Because there was Ottomanism of the 19th century. So these guys were the first ones to think about, okay, maybe we can build a citizenship that is around the idea of being an Ottoman rather than being a Turk or a Laz or a Sirka, you know. So those are maybe the first nostalgics. In 19th century, we have Namak Kemal, or if you think about Abdul Hamid, he was the one who brought back Artur Ghazi's tomb or, you know, kind of renovated that stuff, started like commemorating. I'm not a historian, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was Mahmoud II who, who started commemorating the conquest of Constantinople. So like Ottoman Empire didn't really celebrate every year how they conquered Constantinople, but it starts really in this late Ottoman era. As I said, there is Kemal again in 19th century kind of really again emotional you know about um, this past and how we should be as glorious again but yes in 1923 we see a big move away from all this right we see a big emphasis on the Central Asian roots, roots of Turks and Kemalist regime paints Ottoman Empire as an ancien regime that was the culprit of decline and that we should we should move away from that crumbling regime again. And then like you said, during 50s this makes a first comeback right? Democrat Party regime kind of commemorating the conquest for the first time. And you know, on the popular side, we see lots of new novels coming up about the sultans, people like Reshat Ekrem Koçu, who Orhan Pamuk talks about all the time, or people like Ferdin Tülbanchi publish kind of like sensational novels about the lives of sultans so there, there is that like blip around then. But I would say that what we are seeing right now starts after the 80s. First of all, the popular side of um, the Ottoman nostalgia starts in the 80s with neoliberalization, urbanization, kind of introduction of different consumption habits. And again, Öykü Potoğlu Cook has a wonderful article about like how oriental belly dancing became something during 80s and 90s. Or, you know, people started to be interested about the Ottoman cuisine or like hammam, Turkish baths, which was kind of looked down upon and seen as this old form of baiting, started to come back again. So there's that like really popular interest parallel with the heritage movement around the world, right? And then going back to the political side, 1996, we see that big conquest celebration by the Welfare Party in, in a new stadium. I would say that marks the beginning of this type of neo-Ottomanism, where Erdogan is on the side of Nejmetin Arbakan, is this new rising star. They have won Istanbul municipality, and they frame the whole thing as, okay, Istanbul became Muslim again, or Istanbul 
Istanbul has been reconquered. So what we see today is a continuation of that. Yeah. Thinking back to the conquest, I was struck also thinking, you know, it's not just a kind of marginal thing. I think every primary school that I've ever been to in Turkey or Pasiru has had some picture of Fatih Sultan Mehmet on the wall. Mm -hmm. You know, that classic picture of him walking through the cities, through, mm -hmm. through the city walls after the conquest. You know, it's not just Ataturk everywhere. That picture is, a, you know, embedded in so many school children's minds. You know, it's not difficult to see where the kind of emotional resonance for these kind of conquest rallies comes from. Yes, very, very, very true. I also, a part of my dissertation is also an ethnography of the Museum of Conquest, the Panorama Museum of Conquest. And kids are a big part of that museum. And they do, they do school visits. And every year they have a contest of Fatih's pictures or the picture of um, how would you describe the conquest or how would you paint the picture of the conquest? So I, yeah, I would say that we get educated in this at a very young age now it is in the curriculum and it's that part where we've been in history right so that's the exciting part now we're talking here about the kind of many shades of uh, ottoman nostalgia really and i always think that uh, this wide spectrum really is symbolized actually by the uh, some of the tv series that are popular mm -hmm. and uh, put very crudely you know there's a transformation that we can perhaps observe over the past 10 or so years so 10 years mm -hmm. ago the kind of symbol of this revival the subject of many uh, newspaper articles and whatnot was uh, muhteşem yüzyıl uh, the magnificent century and it was very very popular in turkey it was a very kind of luxurious show about uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, this 16th century uh, Ottoman sultan, full of, you know, palace intrigue, quite a bit of sex, all very relaxed, really. And that uh, was very much of its time, you know, it was 10 years ago, maybe the kind of first wave of this sort of contemporary form of Ottoman nostalgia. Uh, nowadays, the atmosphere has changed a bit. And we can probably say that uh, Ottoman nostalgia is probably symbolized by uh, a few other series. Uh, one of them that has also been subject of some uh, articles is this uh, Paitat Abdul Hamid, mm -hmm. uh, which is this series on state broadcaster TRT, and it's about the uh, the, uh, the late Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid. You mentioned him a bit earlier, Abdul mm -hmm. Hamid II, uh, and he is this figure who is we've actually spoken about him on this podcast before, but uh, he's become rediscovered in a way by many religious conservatives, and this series is a real kind of standard bearer of this yes. new form of uh, Ottoman nostalgia. It's it's very kind of dark series actually. It's full of you know conspiracy theories and you know, barely veiled references to contemporary politics. So in a way, we can trace a, a shift in sensibility there, you know, represented by those two series, Muhteşem Yüzyıl and Payitat Abdul Hamid. Have you also reflected on this shift in tone or do you have any observations about this uh, change over the last 10 or so years? Yeah, honestly, I had nine years to think about all this. <laughs> Because I, yeah, because I started my research on a uh, magnificent century specifically. And I, I gotta say that I see nostalgia as something bigger than this. Like nostalgia is uh, something bigger and we should be differentiating between different forms of it. And here in this case, in Turkey, I do differentiate between popular versus political versions of it. And I do see, um, uh, Muhteşem Yüzyıl or Magnificent Century under Ottoman 
Lithuania. It is part of popular culture. It was more entertaining. It was all about harem intrigues. Like you said, it was sexual. You know, in a sense, it was liberating. And then there's neo-Ottomanism, which is more the political side of all this. And I do ask, you know, what is the relationship between popular and political forms of nostalgia? And here, in the Turkish case, Erdogan was not one bit happy with how his sultan was depicted in the palace all the time among some concubines. He said multiple times that he doesn't recognize that sultan, that he recognized a sultan that was on his horseback for 30 years, right? Or you saw protests from, I think, uh, Ismaila Jamaati protesting uh, the depiction of Suleiman again. So what did the directors do? They did, you know, include more battle scenes. They engaged in self-censorship. And this is still like 2012, 2013, 14. But what did AKP do with all this? They actually learned from popular culture. And I do think that they co-opted, you know, a popular cultural moment, which was more about having fun, watching your, you know, so-called ancestors on TV. But they learned from it and they thought, wait a minute, we can do better than this. We can do a similar version of this, but to our liking. So they did borrow a lot from those popular cultural elements, but they came up with a more religious version. They came up with a more masculine version, a more belligerent version, right? It's less about the harem. And, you know, and, and that like back and forth and that clash go, goes on. It is actually not just a theoretical fight. It is it is a fight that is fought between politics and popular culture. And here in Turkish case, it seems that the, the popular side has been losing and that the, the, the Turkish government or the AKP has been successful in monopolizing history to their liking. But in my interviews, I have seen how this has like alienated people again from even magnificent century. So I interviewed some of the people I interviewed back in 2011, again in 2017. And I asked them, hey, you were a huge fan of magnificent century. Do you still watch it or like it? And people were like, you know what? I don't watch it anymore. I was a big nostalgic. I loved this stuff, but I have distanced myself from all this because all this reminds me of now is their version. So they did lose some of the staunch followers of Magnificent Century because it became too political for their taste. The paper that you wrote is about, you know, populism and history and the relationship between the two. And obviously, in many ways, populism, uh, or one definition of it, is a very kind of simplifying project. You know, there are the people of the real nation and mm -hmm. there are the, you know, non-national others, elites, enemies, dark powers. So it's a very kind of simplistic binary. There's heroes and there's bad guys. And mm -hmm. uh, that binary is often, you know, projected back onto history. So in a way, I suppose it's not surprising that Erdogan is kind of Presented as this modern day Mehmet the Conqueror or mm -hmm. modern day Abdul Hamid II, because when you're looking back at these historical figures and you're projecting a kind of idea about the present day and the idea about history and a sim simplistic kind of binary, that will suddenly make sense. So it's very, very tempting, I suppose, for s certain people to have these kind of very ideological readings of history, I suppose. 
Yeah. You know, history is extremely complex and honestly very hard to understand. It is a, you know, it is a social science and people discuss these things over and over and deliberate and read or read the archives and whatnot. But that's not what we're talking about here. It is, as you said, a simpler version with not even that deep metaphors. I watched a couple of episodes of Pai Taht and the allusions to the coup was not even subtle. It didn't even like require that much imagination to think you know these are the traitors and this is the leader oh look you know he's really similar to Erdogan right yeah and the other aspect of all these series is that they have a global audience too here in the city that I live Minneapolis we have a big Somali diaspora and when I talk to them number one subject is probably Drilish and number two is Erdogan so we should also like think about that dimension of it that this is a very broad, globally optimist dimension, too, that it is a very powerful, soft power. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I think a lot of people sort of wonder, you know, there's um, an increasing amount of, uh, you know, English language news being produced by, you know, very pro-government voices here in Turkey and uh, the expansion of uh, TRT into English language content. And a lot of people quite naively sort of say, well, who's the audience for this stuff? You know, who who do they think they're convincing? But I think it's a pretty simplistic way of looking at things because there is a big English language speaking Muslim audience that they're trying to reach out to. And uh, it's a population of 10 of millions, hundreds of millions uh, potentially mm-hmm. in the world. And uh, that's really the aim. Yeah, yeah, it, it does have a b- bigger audience. But again, I don't want to sound too optimistic, but nostalgia is not only neo-Ottomanism or Ottomania, right? Like now there's a Netflix Turkey. You know, you can like watch any nostalgic TV to your liking and pick and choose and you don't have to necessarily follow Tereze. You know, who has access to that and who has access to Dirilish is another question. But, I, you know, again, I would like to be a little bit more optimistic optimistic in the sense that now they have the political regime has to fight a lot of other nostalgic options to monopolize it like it's not as easy as it was say in 1930 so it is it is a little harder to control the message that's why you need the tv and the rally and another rally before the election after the election we see a constant rallying mode right if if it worked that easily then you wouldn't need that much of um repetition of that right like you have to like keep it constant to keep your own hegemony going to be simplistic right you have to keep that collective effervescence going in an environment where people have a lot of other options you know there's a wide array of popular cultural stuff that people can feed upon and who knows maybe one of them will light another bulb in their heads and they're gonna go in a different direction so it's it's a constant push and pull between you know popular culture and politics that was Yarmor Karakaya. Many thanks to her. Head over to armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com to find a related episode on this issue that we published last year. The historian Professor Edhem Eldem on the contemporary obsession with the late Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who of course we just mentioned in our conversation with Yarmor Karakaya. Remember to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you access to that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Talk. 
Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive of over 90 conversations so far. And access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, covering Turkish history, literature, politics and various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page to stay fully updated with new episodes. And I do enjoy hearing from listeners, so please do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until the next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Gezdim dolaştım Anladım ki